Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Confinement in Catalonia, episode two. Um, little bits of morsels of news. Uh, by the time you hear this, it might be confirmed that Spain is going to extend its estado de alarma, state of alarm, uh, state of emergency, we've usually called it in, across the years in the UK. Uh, wherever you're listening, you, you around the world, you may understand the estado de alarma. Um, I think it's one term that, probably gets used more often in countries which have been used to authoritarian regimes or dictatorships. Anyway, this state of alarm was currently scheduled to last here until April 12th, and now looks as if it might be extend, extended until April 26th. So the first thing I'm going to start this with is I hope all of you are well mentally and physically, and that those around you um, are are not suffering from this virus, but also are not suffering from anxiety or uh, a fear of what's going on. And I, I wish you all strength and happiness. And, and maybe that's part of the reason for doing this uh, right now, even though over the last few days <clears throat> I've been feeling like uh, just washed out and beaten up by Mike Tyson. So I'm putting that down to the normal little virus you can get in uh, springtime as winter changes to spring. And uh, I'm ignoring any thoughts that um, it might have been something more serious. So the the heads up is uh, welcome to part two. I hope you enjoyed uh, part one of the Q&A. And um, as usual, for anybody who's listening for the first time, I must emphasise that all these questions has ever come from our socios, our members, our friends, our supporters at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Anybody that wants to can join there, sign up for extra big interviews, become a socio, support us, which in times of trouble is, is extra appreciated. But for those of you that have been with us for such a long time, thank you. I feel your friends part of a, a little big interview family and we hugely appreciate it. You can also hear me reading any version of my uh, uh, ESPN column, although at the moment column writing has become something that um, isn't as as important, I don't think. Um, there isn't live football commentating on every twist and turn of what's happening vis-a-vis the authorities um, hyperventilating about loss of money and when to, 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 to hypothetically start playing again. That, that's not my scene unless I'm... Um, really asked to pontificate on it because there are 
there are sufficient people talking about unquantifiable and unknowable. At the moment, there's sufficient people finger-pointing too about the sacrifices that football clubs or football players do or don't make. And um, I, I'm currently interested in, in other things. As always, at the heart, um, what beats in me is, is a love for the game itself. So as, for as long as I can stay working on that, the happier I'll be. Maybe the happier you'll be too. So we begin with a couple of Atleti uh, questions, and the first is from one of our most steadfast supporters and one of the most well-travelled football fans I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. It's Richard Kosmala, um, mighty, mighty Huddersfield fan. Now, his question reads like this. Hi, Graham. I was really disappointed with the reaction of the English media to Atleti's victory at Anfield. Ultimately, Atleti won both games. Same with Klopp too. I've long believed there's a snobbery in football, and it does my head in. Ask Senor Bordalas, do, do, there Richard's referring to Bordalas, the coach of Getafe, who feels that his side's reputation, his philosophy of football has been besmirched by people constantly talking about the fact that they do tactical foul, nonetheless. Richard says, do you agree and were you surprised with the reaction in the UK too? Richard, I have to be hugely uh, uh, frank with you now. Um, I, Although I was in the UK when the return leg was played, I didn't consume a huge amount of the written reaction to Atleti winning at Anfield. I was aware of the fact that there was a lot of finger-pointing at uh, Atleti's style, and a lot of it was generated by the fact that Jurgen Klopp, well within his rights, said, I don't know why they play that way. Now, I think he's entitled to that opinion, and he's entitled to express it too. Post-match and defeat like that, I didn't think Klopp's um, words were particularly polemic. And I think that in defeat, we've often heard managers vituperatively finger-pointing in a degree that you, you have to deflate the balloon a little bit because you know that what's dominant in their vocabulary is, is hurt. And disappointment, and I, I didn't think. I think that Klopp told the truth in that he he doesn't understand that form of football, and I think the evidence. I didn't watch a lot of him at Mainz, obviously, but the catalogue of tales about how he how he wanted Mainz to play, then how he had Dortmund playing, and the legacy that he's establishing at Anfield, which, irrespective of whether they are awarded this title, whether the season is completed and they win the title. They've been phenomenal over the last two, three seasons. Therefore, I thought that whether you agreed with them or not, which is a completely different concept, Klopp gave rise to a lot of the coverage which was um, deprecating towards Atleti and Atleti's style. Now, Richard, if there's a snobbery, I, I would accept that it's it's the upstart teams like Hitafi and Atleti that are sneered at. I think your point's good. I think that also we live in an era where after a long time of convincing, a lot in the media, and you're talking about the British media, a lot in the media took a hell of a long time to understand and to, to believe in Guardiola, Sari concepts and 
they have found it easy to sneer at part of the bus, Mourinho, um, latterly Mourinho, not the, not the way that his 4-3-3 Chelsea played, uh, Simeone tactics. So is there a divide in how people think about football? And um, is it slightly at the moment less fashionable to play a Simeone brand of football? I, I think so. Is Simeone's Atletico an underperformer? I think that the, throughout most of the season, Richard, they have been a dramatic underperformer because it was clear at the beginning of the season and the preseason that the depth of squad and the kinds of talents he had there mean not only should they be a little bit more competitive in the league, but they should be playing a more convincing, more consistent brand of football than they have been all season. So focusing on, on the reaction to the two ties, I can't be a hypocrite, Richard. I have publicly said that I really understood what happened after the first leg when interviewed on BT, Van Dyke and Robertson were, if not derogatory, they were, they did turn their nose up at the brand of football and they did talk about Atleti looking for fouls, and looking to influence the referee and looking to waste time. And I, on the night and the 1-0 defeat of Liverpool, I, I didn't think Atleti were particularly close to the wind in terms of um, taking the rules and shredding them. I, I didn't think that at all. A little bit of gamesmanship. Well, everybody tries that. Obviously they do. And I thought at the time Van Dyke and Robertson's comments were aimed at stoking up the atmosphere at Anfield, which again is entirely legitimate. I'm trying to piece together a jigsaw answer here, Richard, because... My opinion, aside from what you asked about the British media coverage, is that Liverpool have been derailed in the European Cup through largely almost no fault of their own. There is fault, but almost none. So in the first leg, it's my opinion that the, had there not been a, a winter break, this first ever pause in the English Premier League calendar, then Liverpool wouldn't have lost their rhythm. And I think that they would have scored at the Metropolitano a minimum. I, I think that the better team has gone out. Now, that is not to ignore the fact that Atleti did something spectacular in the second leg. Eventually, I stress. Nor is it to ignore the fact that, you know, plain and simple, they, they won the first game. Did we see anything like the normal Liverpool? No. Was it materially affected the Liverpool performance and therefore handing a big advantage to Atleti by the fact that Liverpool's players have been sent to four corners of the world to, to relax, to switch off after a brutal schedule? I mean, really brutal. And did we see cobwebs? Yes, we did. And was it identical? In my view, Richard, identical to what we see in footballers when they detach from a really intensely run club, and I don't mean in how they play, but how they think, how they train, how they concentrate, how they how they become indoctrinated by a messianic manager at club level, and then footballers go away to their international selecciones, and they come back just with a little bit of a, you know, a straw behind their ear, suntan lotion on, just a little bit relaxed, and it takes them time to to fix again. It takes them time to refocus, reset. And often you see big teams losing after an international break. And that's when t t players have been training and actually competing. So the winter break, in my opinion, fundamentally affected Liverpool. And anybody who watched that performance will understand my argument. Second leg, this is where we might differ, Richard. Liverpool should have won. Liverpool should have gone through. Had it not been for 
an absolutely atrocious piece of decision-making by their keeper. They would have gone through. Now, have you listened to the podcast we did with Paul Robinson? Because he was our interview guest immediately after that second leg. And I asked Paul, when you could see the kick out from Adrian, which was so poorly executed and resulted in Atleti getting a foothold in the game just when Liverpool had given themselves uh, a definitive aggregate lead. What you could see was a clear understanding of what was happening from James Milner, who dropped into a left-back slot and who'd checked his run, made space and laid himself open for the perfect, easy right foot to left-back pass from the keeper. The keeper didn't even look at it, never mind how he screwed up his attempt to play the ball into midfield. It was an horrendous mistake that either can only be committed by somebody who's an extraordinarily poor football technician, and I don't think that's the case, or somebody whose mental state is distracted, unhappy, where he's lacking self-confidence, and he's trying to please rather than saying, I'm in command, I'll do the right thing. I'll do not the thing I think I'm supposed to do. I'll do the right thing in this situation. Now, had there not been an injury to Alisson, or, and this is where fault comes in, if Liverpool had better selected, not for the first time, remember, if they'd better selected their second-choice goalkeeper, Aleti, in my view, would be out. And, again, in my view, on the night, they were significantly outplayed. And when they win, kudos to the way in which they sniffed the air and go, we're back, at it, on it. They pounced on the remainder of that game like hungry dogs on chopped liver. And for that, absolute kudos and admiration. So I'm not joining what you've outlined in your view, Richard, as a sniffy snobbishness about the style of play. I thought Atleti weren't very good for 85% of that match. I thought Liverpool grew into their skin and grew into the intensity and the determination and the, the movement and the ideas and the substitutions that, that were needed. And therefore, that's the beauty of European football. Atleti go through on merit because they scored the most goals and they won both legs. If, on my part, you detect a lack of appreciation for Atleti, then I've expressed myself badly because I think Liverpool were derailed by factors which were 98% out with their control. And I still state the better team, the better squad, the better run team, the more consistent team has gone out. But fuck it, there is the Champions League for you. How about that? I hope that does the job. Richard, at least it's honest whether you agree with me or not. Liam Young. Hello, Liam. After being mightily impressed with the performance of Thomas Partey over the two legs against Liverpool, who do you believe to be the best holding midfield player in the world right now? There's a there's a big, big, big question. Um, best in the world, I'd be a little bit unsure about. And, and also, Liam... Define holding midfielder. Let me start by saying I welcome your appreciation of Thomas Partey because he's a fun player to watch. And his development has been something of a personal project of Diego Simeone. He was loaned out 
and I've seen interviews with him. I've only spoken to him briefly once, but I've seen interviews that were more in depth than I've ever been able to have with him, where he talks about coming to uh, a new football culture where not only was there masses to learn from where he'd been taught in his youth in Ghana to what he understood the levels to be in Spanish football in general, and then a second tier of learning, which is to appreciate and to be able to demonstrate the level of intensity of concentration that was demanded at Atleti, particularly levels of concentration demanded when you're working at the outside level of fitness. So Thomas Partey is a good athlete, but being worked extra hard by Professor Ortega, the increasingly, in my view, embattled, but nonetheless highly regarded fitness trainer at Leti, you know, I'm sure, Liam, that to, to make the right decisions in football can be easy if you're fit and if you know the team pattern and you're technically gifted. But the level of difficulty in making the right decisions, particularly micro decisions over and over again, how do I adjust my body to receive this ball? What space should I be in? Should I be looking to take the ball? Should I be calling for the ball? If I'm calling for the ball and I get it, how do I control a half touch, two touches? Do I already know that I'm turning to reverse the ball to somebody behind me? Am I? Is that a first-time ball to Koke to my right? These micro-decisions that footballers need to calculate probably 60 or 70 decisions every three, four minutes. When you're at the peak of your exhaustion, when you're working double hard, then the ability to calculate those becomes increasingly in jeopardy. And Partey's big change, in my opinion, in recent years, which accounts for him being played in his proper position rather than intermittently played at right back, centre back. He, he was put on, I'm pretty sure late last season, not this season, auxiliary second striker. And he's a footballer of wit and enthusiasm and technique that can stand these changes. But just like the way that Saul is overused in too many positions because he can, and therefore you're not getting, you're not squeezing the best juice out of him. Partey needed to be central midfield and he needed to dominate that position. The reason that he's increasingly been allowed to do so by Simeone is that the, the microprocessor in Thomas Partey's head has, has got quicker and more accurate. And therefore, although clearly a guy who's quite laid back and, and not the strongest, most aggressive, dominant character in that group, although he was technically able a long time ago, he wasn't going to win centre midfield by being the big, aggressive, barking, team-leading boss like Keane, Sunes, like Diego Simeone himself. No, he had to earn it on repeated technical excellence and there's still a mistake in him because it's a position of high pressure and occasionally he will give the ball away. But like you, I would argue that over time he's become increasingly reliable and therefore able to produce the clever things that make him a pretty special footballer. You used holding. I, I think that has become not a redundant term, but it's one that you 
you'll almost never hear me use. So what's a holding midfielder, Liam? In, in the old days, I think it was when, particularly in Britain, because it's an English, it's a phrase in the English language, it was a, a midfielder whose role was to block, was to make sure that if he was an auxiliary to anybody else's needs, to his right, to his left, but behind him particularly, a holding midfielder is somebody who can slow the game down, who can get in the way of things. And I I don't use it. I, I prefer organising midfielder because then I think you're encompassing the idea that you should be communicating to right and left and behind and in front about their position, about what the team's role in any given minute is. Are you um, falling back to try and reorganise after the ball's been robbed off you? Are you about to build a, a, an attack? Is it time to press the accelerator and rapidly counter-attack where everybody's got to think in split seconds and the, the passes wherever possible have got to be one touch? That's a different thing from holding midfielder. And I think it's a more complete description You'll have your candidate. In fact, please let us know who you think. Is it Thomas Partey? Is that what I read into the question? For my money, I think that candidates include Fernandinho, who it's a sadness to me has been necessarily played at centre-back for City. But if you watch his contribution to City in recent years, he must be a candidate. I think that Sergio Busquets has, has lost really key things in that area in the last couple of seasons. His pace is is becoming more of a problem, not less of a problem. The fact that he, the team is the team's systematic ideas are breaking down around him has left him in, in real difficulty. The fact that there's no Xavi or Iniesta or players of that level next to him also is a problem. The fact that the bus on a front three don't press like they once did in the 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 problems really mount up. I think Rodri at City has the capabilities to, to push his way into that argument. But I, I'd be I'd be a liar if I didn't argue that Kante has been exceptional in that role. Um I'm a big fan of the way that Jorginho starts to play. I think that his ability to circulate the ball with vision and speed and technical um, a, a technique that you really see makes him a very very interesting player and before even I would say before De Jong was bought Jorginho was the purchase for Football Club Barcelona if they wanted to play the brand of football they'd become associated with since 2002-03 anyway I, I wouldn't look far past uh Golo Kante at the moment. There are other candidates that I haven't named, um, I think, without question. But Kante is so good at everything he does, and maybe he fits more into your uh, category of holding midfielder than mine of organising midfielder. But I do think he's absolutely exceptional, and I'd welcome knowing from you, Liam, who you think um, best fits your description of the number one holding midfielder in world football. All right, listen, I've got to go and get a cup of tea. Yes, we get cups of tea in Barcelona. So we're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back very soon with more of your questions. Stay tuned.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Second half. Second half, and apparently we stay with Atleti. And this is a particularly interesting one from David Black. Hi, Graham. I have a question about fans in Spain and their feelings towards each other. I know that Atletico Madrid were an offshoot of Athletic Club once upon a time, but now they're separate. I was wondering how the atmosphere is between the two clubs. Is there any animosity between the teams and fans, or is there a lasting bond between the two? I'd also be curious if you know of any clubs or fans which get along very well, despite not obvious geographical connections. Thanks. David, thank you. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. It's a tough one. I, I honestly believe, David, that in the modern era, and um, remember I only lived in Spain since 2002, early 2002, in the modern era, a lot of the way in which the different regions reaction to clubs from other regions is, is governed by social and political undertones, irrespective of the fact that there was terrorism in Spain for a long time based around some people in the Basque countries wish to be completely independent. Set that to one side. I still believe that the demand by certain communities to get either increased semi-autonomous, autonomous or completely divorced status from the central state I think that the the social and political aspects of that have continued to flourish over the last 18-19 years and therefore <laughs> there's no getting away from the fact that particularly as in recent years increasingly the media has uncovered scandals about what the central state and its representatives have been doing with public money, that there's been graft, that there's been corruption, that there's been theft of public money, that the the royal family's status has increasingly become besmirched because of a variety of different things. The Madrid teams are not very popular outside their own communities, except it is still the case that if you follow Real Madrid to um, Cantabria or to Andalusia and other regions too, you'll see that there are a lot of people who either because they've been displaced or because they're aspirational suddenly drop the shirt and scarf of the club that they support week in, week out and become... And listen, this goes a little bit for Barcelona too. I think it's more Madrid, but it does go for Barcelona too. Suddenly, they'll adopt a second identity, which while their club is visiting Barcelona or Real Madrid, suddenly they'll become fans of that club against Racing Santander or Malaga or Granada. And therefore, the concept of dropping your club for a bigger club um, twice a season it is is completely alien to most of us. It's something that I can't cannot understand. 
one of the things that you saw, Cadiz, when they were up, they were kind of universally beloved when they were up in the Primera the last time because they turn up in their in their sort of loud shirts and their and their absolutely noisy fans who who broke a um there's a pattern in Spain where there there tends not to be large number of travelling fans, not only across the country geographically like we do in Britain, but even across a city. It's it's really rare for there to be thousands upon thousands of another club's fans travelling with their boys to an away match. Partly that's to do with the ridiculous timetable spread across a weekend, and therefore, if you like, the most crude example is if if you're Malaga and you're drawn to play Racing Santander at five o'clock on Sunday afternoon, never mind nine o'clock at night on Sunday night, there's no danger of you getting back to your work the next morning. So th- that's not an all-encompassing example because there are, you know, more generous timetables and, and lesser distances. But Spain is a is a, just a gigantic landmass compared to the UK and Ireland, and therefore, somehow or other, the, the concept of we will follow our fan, our club everywhere, and we'll arrive in another city, and we'll try and take over that city, and take over the opposition stadium, and try and balance out the away effect. That that is not a common factor in Spanish football, but Cadiz, for whatever reason, took more fans proportionately for their club and their city than than people were used to and they always used to get bevied up and they always used to go absolutely crazy around the stadium and in the in the stadium during the game and and they were really well liked i'll give another example one of the uh, recent uh, finals which i think was 2012 was barca athletic and it was held in the calderon and there was such a feeling there, and it was partly anti-state. So when the national anthem was played before the cup final, there was you know a level of whistling and jeering which was you know unprecedented, I think, and caused a lot of fuss in the TV companies and centralists or or, or people who support the the central state were outraged. There was a, there was a big social debate about it. But beyond the fans from the Basque Country and Catalonia, each of which territories have said we want to be unique, we want to step away, we want to cede from from Madrid completely. Aside from that, there was a massive amount of, of feeling between both sets of fans, both clubs and both players. It was something that was really uh, noticeable at, at the end when Barcelona were celebrating, but they bought Brought the I think it was Puyol that brought the Basque flag and laid it down in the centre circle next to the Catalan flag, and I'm estimating here because I wasn't in Carlos Puyol's circle of confidence that night. I I don't think it was just a two fingers of defiance to Madrid. I think it was a gesture of solidarity between one another, and I I don't think I think there's a a, a positivity of feeling uh, towards Athletic. Um, and Real Sociedad when they come to the camp now <laughs> is that the case when Barca go to San Mames particularly no I don't think so so m- my opinion is that you've asked a complicated question Th- there are times when clubs w- will be friendly because the presidents like or know each other uh, and I think that's an element I don't think that clubs in Spain any more than other clubs in around the world 
are identifiably one thing or other. I think they're amoebas. I think they change shape and change um, components. I think that they are not defined as one black and white ideology or thing um, if, if you look over a number of years. And therefore, for example, it, it was really weird to watch when Eto was partly owned by Mallorca and a smaller percentage owned by Real Madrid, the fact that the then vice president at Barcelona, Sandro Rosé, was pretty friendly with Florentino Perez across the barricades as it would be between Barcelona and Real Madrid. Madrid facilitated, I think, a 30 million purchase for Eto, which even then, even then just looked a steal, not steal of the century, but a steal. It was a healthy price back in the day, but you knew Eto was special in every aspect. And and the fact that Florentino Perez was willing to put friendship with Rosé sufficiently high up the agenda, presumably asking for some sort of political favour back in the future. Okay, he's not dope. But would you have imagined me talking about a friendly gesture between Real Madrid and Barcelona when it comes to not unifying in times of a crisis, but in terms of an asset that Real Madrid, without any question, should have held on to and repurchased? Would you have imagined that that's what I'd be saying? No. So, David, atmospheres between clubs... Is there animosity between teams and fans, lasting bond between the two? I think these things, in terms of bonds, in terms of friendship, in in, in terms of fraternal feelings, I think these ebb and flow based on, are you a threat to me? Do I like you? Do I like your president? Do I like your... Have we done good business together? So, for example, at the moment, principally through originally Sarah Ferrer, who was famously a coach of Betis at one of their best modern iterations, which was when Bobby Robson was coach at Football Club Barcelona. And then he became both a, a football director and a coach at, at Football Club Barcelona. Then latterly, although he's out now, he went back to Betis. And, and Betis and Barcelona have developed a good working relationship to the extent that they're co-purchasers of Emerson. I don't know if you knew that, but it's a co-funded project with um, a la Di Stefano, the idea that Emerson plays two years at Betis and then comes to 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 Barcelona. So these things ebb and flow. And if, if you mean in football culture, are there abiding loyalties and friendships between two sets of fans or two clubs that, that are immutable, then I think no. I think they ebb and flow just like everywhere else around the world. So, Mr. Black, we need now to end with a question from our regular contributor, our friend, Daryl Garrity. Um, hey, guys, how about a quick recap on the tumultuous relationship with the board and players at Barca and what may lie ahead? Hopefully, the elections will be brought forward. Daryl, man, um, I don't know if the elections will be brought forward, but I think everything points against it. Certainly, Bartomeu, the current president, Barcelona, said recently that isn't going to happen. And, and if you're honest now... Football has had to be postponed, Daryl. Then the idea of bringing um, an event where people um, congregate, even though there are, there's electronic voting, as controversial as it is, the idea of bringing forward um, to this summer is, is something that um, brings many thousands of people together in a small space when that's not necessary. I can't see it happening. 
That if the financial impact on Barcelona is so great that the current board can't cope, then in that circumstance, perhaps. Your, your principal driver, for anybody who's not followed what Daryl's talking about specifically, there is something that I think inadvertently was brought to a head um, the other day when La Vanguardia, a quality Catalan newspaper, not football paper, spoke to Xavi by um, Skype uh, from his home in Qatar, which is about a 10, 15 minute drive from the Aspire Academy. And it's right next to his brother's house. They they, they are literally neighbours. And it's also Xavi's living in the house that Raul, uh, is, is that right? Is it Raul's house? Have I made that up? I'm going to have to check that. It came out of my brain without me thinking, when did Raul play there? Anyway, I think it's Raul's house that he lives in in, in Qatar. What I, would, what I would point to is that Xavi talked about when he takes over, he wants to take over a new project. One that isn't necessarily tied to his friend Victor Font, although that's effectively what he was talking about. He was talking about a start from scratch, not inheriting, not being parachuted in, as was the attempt by Bartomeu at Christmas time. Whatever he says about um, it was always meant to be City, and they asked Xavi if he would take over, and he said no. That's a fact. Xavi's word that I think, Daryl, answers your question is that he said when he takes over, he won't want any toxicity, any toxic characters around the relationship between the board, the management and the dressing room. And by describing a state, a nirvana state, because football can be toxic, that Chabi wants to establish when he takes over, and he named, to nobody's surprise, Carlos Puyol and Jordi Cruyff as people he expects to be fundamentally involved when he's coach. In using the adjective toxic, I think he did the perfect job of explaining where we've got to. I think as somebody who appreciates good football, Daryl, you'll probably be woeful about the, the brand of football that we've seen in recent months, the decision-making, the outrageously bad forward planning in football terms, the amount which has been spent, the degree to which the wage bill has never been adequately trimmed, the lack of pace in this side which is ageing. All these things... I'd imagine if you were the, the marker and Barca were the pupil, you'd be giving them probably at best six out of ten and in some areas three out of ten in how they've handled those issues. But in how the board has handled relationships with the squad, that's just about their lowest mark because there's a complete lack of trust. Whether it's to do with the fact that the, the playing group is a little bit out of step and I, I think it is. I think that their gross talent and their enormous, brutal, under-recognised determination, steely determination to win has kept them, not the club, them afloat in terms of their winningness. I've adopted a word I used to hate. Because I don't think the current squad is physically prepared for the demands of elite football at the moment. I think that the fact that they are so bountifully talented and have got this brutal, flinty, 
Teflon hard will to win, those two components, it's like I'll make, I'll draw an analogy. I remember David Robertson, um, Aberdeen born, Aberdeen left fullback, who played for Leeds and eventually <coughs> Rangers. And I knew his agent well, and he told me that at the end of their career, or, or actually maybe, actually to be fair, I think it was maybe at Leeds, David was having some knee ligament problems. And it turned out that he'd had a, a such critical damage to a knee ligament that it had it, it, it wasn't connected anymore but he'd been able to play on at a high level without anybody noticing because he was so athletic in such good condition he'd played on for seasons without a component of his his leg at his knee connecting in a way that every other footballer would have found utterly essential and it was a freak of nature and I think that what's happening now is that Barcelona are continuing. There's a state of momentum which at any minute could collapse altogether because there is a disconnect completely between the board and the squad in terms of respect, in terms of communication, in terms of mentality, in terms of trust. Now, at the moment, because the the media is quite in abeyance in Catalonia, the media, the printed papers at a time when circulation is going down and they depend wholly on Football Club Barcelona for tidbits of news, for promotional items, for being able to use the Barca brand in buy the paper, get five tokens and, and get your you know, your Barca Cagoule or your mattress or your, your steak knives with, with the Barca brand on it. These things count. And I'm sad to say that that there are many journalists who don't act or, or think that way, but the corporate organisations are enthralled to Football Club Barcelona. So what you get is not sufficiently urgent investigation into the state of play at Barcelona's board. And the president, I think, is very adept at manipulating the, the the mass public and the media in terms of them not putting a magnifying glass on his failings. And he's prone to sacking the football director every couple of years or every year, such that it looks like it's somebody else's fault. So, Daryl, you, you were talking about Leo Messi's communique. On, but it wasn't an individual communique. He did so as captain of of the squad, where he said that they would take a 70% pay cut. They would also donate 2% of their total salaries, which is a lot of money, to the non-playing employees of the club. So those employees, while they were at home, whether they were working, some of them are working very hard, I can see that. The, the Barca social media profile has, if anything, gone up. But there are some employees who are not working um, because their jobs are not redundant, but they are unnecessary in a time when there's no football. The squad have donated an extra 2% voluntarily <clears throat> so that those non-playing staff at Camp Now can take home their full salary for the duration of this pandemic crisis. I think that's admirable. But in his communique, he said that the players were furious that what appeared to them is that certain people within the club were deliberately trying to put what he called a, a, a spotlight on the players' behaviour during the 10-day period between the first meeting that the president and the players had via teleconferencing and the announcement. Those 10 days were times when Catalan newspapers were, were talking about heartless, greedy players who wouldn't reduce their salaries and wouldn't donate anything towards the crisis, when it's now 
a matter of fact that Leo Messi on behalf of the squad said on day one, we will reduce our salary. We will help the club. We will help the employees. We understand that our fans and employees are going through a terrible time. That was day one. And it took them 10 days to agree the package, which in, in serious wage negotiations, that irrespective of the fact that the footballers can all afford it, as Carlos Tevez notably said the other day, when you're having a salary reduction, when you're negotiating something that is unique, you negotiate it properly, irrespective of the fact that it, it public opinion said it had to happen. You do it properly. I support them in that. And the fact that it took 10 days between a gigantic club on a complicated subject and a group of players who were dispersed and needed to negotiate from home without having their agents beside them. I understand the 10 day margin. And I think what Barcelona players have, have done, and they are not alone in doing this right across. You asked me about Barcelona. Therefore, nobody who supports another team in Spain should think that I'm favouring Barcelona by praising them. There are other clubs that have done an enormous amount. One that stands out is Real Betis. Absolutely stand out. Energetically taking care in the community. And I want to use this I want to use this part of the question and answer to praise my own club, the club I love, Aberdeen, who have gone actively out to help supporters who've said, listen, we're in financial trouble. Please support us by season tickets and Aberdeen DNA. But they've set up a program of outreach to the Aberdeen community, which includes now in this new month of April, getting in contact directly by phone with 12,000 people who may be lonely, who are maybe aged, who may be suffering difficult financial circumstances. And the playing staff, the director, staff at Pataudry, are going to try and phone 12,000 of them over this coming month, having done hundreds of such calls towards the end of March. And I think that, again, I have to praise my own club, Aberdeen, in the way that their youth academy... Um, particularly Liam McGarry and, and Gav Casey and Neil Simpson, have set training uh, homework plans under a no-excuses banner, and they're still standing free banner as far as the social contact is concerned, the, to, to kids saying, here is your homework, practice at home. The fact that you can't come into group training doesn't mean you let your skill set go dormant. In fact, you you press yourself more because you're not at school. It's been enormously successful. And I, I, I mentioned my club because I admire what they've done not out of loyalty but of pure admiration and I admire what Barcelona's players have done in a 70% pay cut but Messi pointed out that they believe that people within the club during the 10 day negotiation period even though the players said that they were wholeheartedly in favour right from the start fed stories to the Catalan media which led to disparagement of footballs, of the footballers at camp now and I back Messi on that somebody at the, at the camp now patently fed that story out. Bartomeu said, not me, I don't know who it was, and there might be there might have been somebody who was operating without the full information. Always somebody else's fault, Bartol. Always. This reign, um, irrespective of Bartomeu having been in charge when the second treble was won, and Barcelona remained the only club to have won two trebles, this reign will be harshly judged by history. So will Bartomeu. And so will the socios who set this chain of events in action by electing Sandro Rosé in 2010. That was a horrendous mistake. So was the election of Bartomeu subsequently after he'd taken over from Rosé who did a midnight flit. Even though Bartomeu has done things that I think are admirable and that will stand out, 
the overall net verdict, particularly when you look at the way in which the footballer operation has been run down and the debt that has been in, inculcated into the, the system, spend rather than plan, spend rather than trust the old Cruyff idea, history will judge that badly. Daryl, there you go. I think I don't think I've surprised you with any of that. To all of you, thank you. To all of you, thank you for being there. Thank you for the questions. I'm glad you're tuning in. It's my voice only, and I'm sorry about that. Often you'll get Martin Gregg or Neil White asking these questions, and I apologise, but you'll understand that it's it's a pandemic, it's a crisis. Martin and his wife are the have had the great good fortune of having a, a young child, so Martin is doing a little bit of uh, nappy duties, and, and rightly so. And Neil White is running the Backpage Empire solo. So I promised I would do this on my own. I have done. And I promise you that pretty soon you'll be hearing two voices in this again. And please, next time or whenever you want, send in audio questions because they're very welcome indeed. So that's it for the question and answer show for the big interview uh, socios in March. We'll be back during April with more of your questions and there are a lot more big interviews to enjoy. Starting with um, Tony Curry, um, a fabulous, elegant, sedan-style footballer in the 70s and 80s for Sheffield United, Leeds United and QPR and England. A gent, somebody who I thought was a wonder... When I was a kid... So I began to watch Tony Curry probably when I was 11 or 12. And then for the next eight, nine years, I thought he was extraordinarily gifted, balanced, talented, full of flair, elegant. He looked dashing. I don't mind using that word. Meeting him um, at Bramall Lane recently was an absolute joy. What a character he is. What a brilliant accent he's got too, if I'm allowed to cheekily say that. Listen in, tell people about the big interview with Tony Curry. Thanks for listening. And for the moment, adios. Stay smart, stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy. (laughs) 